electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. We were trying to stitch together a rebound here, but I'm looking at a NASDAQ right now down 1.7%. Tesla's at 760. Microsoft's below 270. Tesla's at, I'm sorry, uh, 770. You know, I won't say the numbers right now. I'll save that for the expert over there, Dom Chu. Tesla, Microsoft, Apple are all below key levels. 149 for Apple, like you just heard from Scott. All of this is happening after the higher-than-expected inflation report this morning. Our next guest warns that inflation is broadening and the Fed will have to do more tightening than the market expects next year. We'll tell you at what point he would be willing to own Treasury bonds, and it is not here. Also, the not-so-stable coins, and that's not helping the market sentiment right now. Terra USD was supposed to be pegged to the dollar. It's now worth just 30 cents. Could it pull the rug out from underneath the whole crypto complex? We will try to get some answers. And Disney reports after the bell. We'll get you ready for that report, plus Beyond Meat and Rivian, all coming up in earnings exchange. But first, let's start with Dom you on all the key levels I in mean, these markets. Seriously, Kelly, all those headlines you just ran just read off right now don't do anything for taking on risk in this kind of a market right now. And that's generally what you're seeing overall is this risk aversion trade continuing to play out right now. The Dow Industrials, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite, they're all in the red right now. And we are pretty much at session lows. Kelly mentioned the 1.7% declines for the Composite Index. That is now down 211 points. 11,525 is the level you're looking at. We are still below 4,000 on the S&P 500, down another 25 handles, 39.75 the last trade there, off about two-thirds of 1%. And then Dow Industrials, 32,072, down about one-quarter of 1%, the outperformer, and it has been pretty much all day long. With regard to the thematic trade that Kelly was pointing out before, we are below some key areas that traders are watching for many of the mega cap technology and tech related names. Apple now below 150 bucks, 149.82 the last trade there off 3%. Microsoft's down 2.5%, 262 and change there. Amazon $2,110 down 3%. Alphabet outperforming only down one third of 1%. And Meta Platforms, the parent company of Facebook, $190.29 down 3 and 3 quarters percent. So the tech sell off continues. And there's also, with regard to the microeconomic, more company-specific stories out there, check out what's happening with regard to video game publishing and kind of the overall theme for the metaverse and virtual platforms and software platforms going forward. Electronic Arts, the best-performing stock in the S&P 500, up about 10% right now, even though it disappointed on some of its earnings results. Meanwhile, Unity Software, Lower than expected revenues, it's now down 35%, $31.27. Meanwhile, Roblox had some disappointing aspects to its report, but it's still up about 5.5% off-session highs right now. So, again, a lot of interesting movements happening with regard to some of these growth-oriented names. We'll see how traders play that out in the coming hours as we head towards the closing bell, Kel. I'll send things back over. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Stocks rallying, then giving up those gains after the CPI report. Inflation jumped 8.3% in April on an annual 
annual basis. That was less than the March increase, so that's the first slowdown in eight months, and it raised hopes that inflation has peaked. But my next guest says don't buy it. We're facing broad-based inflation, and the Fed has a big problem now. Joining me is Michael Schumacher. He's head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. Michael, it's great to have you back. And, I mean, listen, the core CPI up six-tenths on the month. Those aren't the kind of readings we want to see. No, it's a pretty grim number, Kelly, and frankly, it's broad-based, and that's really the huge problem for the Fed. Whether you look at food, energy, or in the core, services up seven-tenths of a percent. The Fed has talked about this really being a goods inflation for a while, supply chain, but it's not just that. It's much more. So broad-based, really challenging for the Fed right now. And what tells you that this is broad-based in response to those who go, nah, it was just airfares, just, you know, airfares jump, that's the whole story? Yeah, it's funny. We've heard a number of these stories. So this month, airfares, previous months, used cars. But it seems that the, the bad actor changes month by month. And if you look at the breakdown, most categories are up quite a bit. So again, whether it's services, whether it's food, energy, airfares, you named any number of things, it seems like they're all pointing in one direction up. And I think the big takeaway, too, goes back to some of the comments from the Fed meeting last week, you've got to focus on the labor market. The labor market's incredibly tight. That tends to embed these inflation expectations, which drives prices up across the board. So super tough time for the Fed and really globally for policymakers. It's not that you're quibbling with what the market thinks the Fed will do this year. It's now 2023. You know, we're almost halfway through, so it's time to start talking about what's on the horizon. And you think there's going to have to be a lot more tightening next year. Yeah, it's interesting, Kelly. So we've got record high inflation, at least in the last 30 to 40 years. We're talking about it being good news that it's only 8.3% over the last year. And the market's saying, hey, wait a minute, we think the Fed's got this. It'll be mostly done this year, only maybe two interest rate hikes next year. That seems really far-fetched. We don't buy it. So let me follow up on that. I mentioned off the top, there's a level at which you'd be more interested in uh, sort of buying treasury bonds or bonds, broadly speaking, but we're not here yet. So basically, you say you want to see the market pricing in closer to a 4% Fed funds rate than 3% as the end point for Fed rate hikes. Is that right? And once they price that in, then you'd feel more comfortable? That's definitely right, Kelly. So from our perspective, and just to give the the viewers some context, the market currently is pricing maybe 320, 325 for the end of the cycle, something like that, to be reached in the middle of 23. We think that's way too low. Got to tack on an extra 50 basis points at least, so 375, maybe more. At that point, we'd be comfortable saying, hey, bonds have really taken it on the chin. Perhaps it's time to get in. But until the market really prices that sort of level out of the Fed, we think there's just not enough cushion built in, not enough protection against inflation. So I would steer clear. So yeah, the the level is sort of in sight, but not there just yet. Well, that is the perfect segue to what we just heard was a pretty poor 10-year auction. Michael, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kelly. Michael Schumacher with Wells Fargo. Rick Santelli is out at the CME with the results of the 10-year auction. What do you got for us, Rick? Well, first of all, it's $36 billion, and it is 10 years, and the grade was not good. I gave it a D-plus dog plus, and the reason is pricing. The yield at this auction was 2.943%. Of course, we were hoping for a 3% coupon, but the point is, is that the when issued market was trading right around 2.929. So it had a one and a half basis point tail, and that's where the big demerits came from on the grade. Let's go through it quickly. 2.49 bid to cover, roughly in line with 10 auction average. 70.3, also roughly in line on indirects. Rather lofty 10 auction average. The best uh, with regard to the metrics here was 
the directs at 18.2%. That was best since June of 21. Dealers take 11.5%. That's below the 10 auction average. So the metrics were pretty good, but the pricing really did hurt. And it does underscore that this is a two-for auction. If you have direct loans, student loans by the federal government, this is the May auction on 10 years that helps pick your rate. And the rate will be basically the 2.943 plus a premium of a little over 200 basis points. So if you have a student loan, look for around 5% to be your cost. Kelly. Back to you. Rick, we saw the 10-year go back above 3% after the CPI report, but we're still off of, what was it, 320, the highest for the week? So just kind of give us a feel for where you th- and how you think investors are positioned right now. You know, I think that interest rates are real tough on the long end because of all the masking that's gone on with respect to the central bank hiding very good signals for us trying to draw a conclusion by all the quantitative easing they did. And of course, it's gonna make matters worse as they reverse their balance sheet and start putting these for sale along with mortgage securities eventually. But I would look at it like that the high yield we get in the markets may not be the actual high yield that we see once the Fed gets further through on this tightening cycle. Hmm. And today, even though inflation numbers were hot, there's very little doubt we're somewhere near the top. I never thought that would be an issue. The issue isn't whether we're close to the top in inflation. The issue is how sticky it's going to be and what's going to remain at much higher levels than pre-COVID inflation areas in the economy. And I think if you had to keep this real simple, 3.23 3.24% represent some double tops in the past. 320 is the intraday high you just pointed to, Kelly. I would look for that whole zone there to remain very good uh, resistance yield-wise. And I think that that could definitely be an area that's going to be very difficult to get through over the next several weeks. All right. As we're just below 3% this afternoon as we digest a rather poor auction. Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli. Let's turn now to markets. Quick check shows the Nasdaq at session lows down 2% right now. It's below 11,500. I should mention especially the pressure across the crypto space on stocks like Coinbase, and we'll have more on that in a moment. The S&P down three quarters of 1%, and the Dow's only down 127 points right now. And here's this for a buy signal. Investors hate the market. Investor intelligence says bullish sentiment is at its lowest level since 2016. Goldman's U.S. equity sentiment indicator is now at 2011 lows, and Bernstein's sentiment gauge is flashing extremely pessimistic levels. On that note, let's bring in Chris Grisanti. He's the chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Chris, capitulation, putting in a bottom. Do you have to make that call here? Well, Kelly, it's nice to be with you again. I, I wouldn't make that we're at the bottom call yet, but but I do think we can see it from here. So, so it, your last guest from Wells Fargo said that, uh, you know, rates will probably go up further than we think. I think the market is digesting that now. Of course, the market looks six months ahead. And if we picture ourselves six months from now, I think inflation will be lower. Commodity prices, for example, oil peaked in March. I think things will be in a much better place. And the pessimism that we feel now won't be nearly as pervasive. So so I would think without a recession, Equities have a decent chance of, of being an okay investment class for the next six months. You're looking at names like Alphabet and Visa in particular, and you know that may not sure. might not sound too provocative to people, but more interestingly, you're saying you would even fade the energy trade here. Is that right? 
I would. You know, I think energy was yesterday's hot group. I mean, historically, if you buy into energy stocks with commodity prices near a record, your returns aren't that great. So I would bet good money that from here, you pick your favorite energy stock and I'll pick Google. And a year from now, I bet I will have done better than you simply because uh, one is valued much more cheaply and has a better chance of making numbers. And the other may suffer if the economy slows. Yeah, you know, and that's like our stock draft. Most of the names that, that were chosen were a lot of the fallen tech angels and so in that sure. sort of realm. Is there anything there that you would be nibbling on? Or do you think that is a permanent valuation reset that's just occurred? Well, I think you have to be discriminating. I, I think I like Google, for example, because it's only 15 times next year's number. It's actually cheaper than the market. It's really hard to find a, a high-class company with no debt that's growing so fast that's cheaper than the market. So, so look around and pick. I, I still think the Teslas and, and some of the others are, are simply too expensive and need more air taken out. And boy, inflation will do that for you. But now there are other names. This isn't everything going down in the future. This is more pick and choose and don't be afraid to put some cash to work. I want to. We got to get you and, and Sankey or Pickering, one of the energy guys, uh, to actually, you know, put, put make this a gentleman's bet of some kind, or maybe we sure. all do it for a living. So sure. why bother? Chris, we'll leave it there on a busy day. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. Nice to be with you. Chris Grisanti with MAI Capital Management. We've got a news alert out of the Federal Reserve. Tyler Matheson with the story. Tyler. Kelly, uh, there is a new Federal Reserve ch president at the Dallas Fed. Her name is Lori Logan. She's been named president and CEO of the Dallas Fed to begin uh, in August in that role. She replaces Robert Kaplan, who retired earlier than planned last September, following some controversy uh, regarding his stock market trading. As I mentioned, she will take over on August 22. She is a longtime Fed uh, veteran, mostly out of the New York office, where she's uh, been in charge the manager of system open market accounts for the Fed, which basically means that she oversees the Fed's $9 trillion portfolio of securities and leads the implementation of monetary policy uh, as directed by the Fed. Uh, she will join the Fed's open market committee as the representative of the Dallas uh, Federal Reserve Bank that covers Texas, uh, Louisiana, parts of Louisiana, and southern New Mexico. So a new Fed president at the Dallas Bank, and it is Laura. K. Logan. Kelly? At a key moment for the Federal Reserve. Tyler, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up is crypto, a house of cards built on stable coins. We'll probe the problems with one in particular this week as their backers are left scrambling for capital. Plus, Disney is the worst Dow stock over the past 12 months. Beyond Meat is on pace for its sixth straight week of losses, and Rivian is down 79% just since January. Will their earnings turn things around today? We have the action, the story, and the trade for all of these names ahead on The Exchange. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Remember the great financial crisis? At its climax in September 2008, the Reserve Primary Money Market Mutual Fund broke the buck. That triggered a fresh wave of panic that peaked days later with the collapse of Lehman and the bailout of AIG. Is something similar now happening in crypto? The stablecoin TerraUSD broke its one-to-one peg to the dollar, plunging as low as 26 cents this morning. How did it happen, and where do we go from here? Kate Rooney is here to explain. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, it's not every day we're talking about a big move in a stable coin, as the name suggests. These things are supposed to be stable and pegged to the price of a dollar. But today, the Terra USD stable coin down from that one dollar peg to a low of around 23 cents. Investors are comparing this to a run on the bank. People are losing confidence and in a lot of cases heading for the door. And much like the stable coin I mentioned, the platform's Luna token also crashing overnight with a 90 percent decline. It wiped roughly $22 billion from its market cap in just a week. And that freefall has to do with the company behind all of this, the Luna Foundation right now, really doing everything it can to restore confidence and try to bring that stablecoin back to its dollar value. Co-founder Do Kwan has been pretty active on Twitter lately. He announced that it would be minting four times the usual number of these stablecoins, all in hopes of stabilizing the prices. And this whole project was supposed to be decentralized, meaning It's not tied to the traditional financial system. It's not backed by dollars or short-term debt. It's backed by other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And it's unraveling in the past week or so has been a big hit to sentiment and the broader crypto markets. Investors I'm talking to say this is arguably the biggest black eye yet for the industry. It shows, for one, they can't self-police, at least in this case. It will result most likely in more regulation, especially from Treasury, which was already laser-focused on stablecoins. It's bad for the other U.S.-based issuers of stablecoins. You've got Circle and companies like Paxos here in the U.S., and there are billions of losses out there. It's not just retail investors. It's hedge funds, some of the more well-known institutional investors, and what sometimes we call the smart money here, but a lot of people losing a lot of money on this trade. Kelly. Whales and shrimps, as we learned yesterday. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rooney. And TerraCoin isn't the only stablecoin under pressure right now. Let's bring in Frank Chaparro. He's news director at The Block. Frank, what can you tell us uh, is the latest today? USDC, Tether, I mean, you know, how do these pegs look? Yeah, it's a great question. We, de- we did see a bit of depegging in Tether, but I talked with the team, Kelly, and it seems like that they're managing redemptions quite well across different desks. I have heard that there is pressure to get out of stable coins right now because they are worried about the risk, um, the risk sort of illustrated in UST, which really can't be understated, right? This event is probably, and I tweeted this last night, the most destructive wealth event in the history of crypto with probably about $50 billion just wiped out. So it's not surprising that investors are worried about Tether and other stable coins at the moment. And from their uh, Bitcoin, I mean, look at shares of Coinbase today. They're down, at last check, about 27 percent. So the entire ecosystem is at what kind of risk to the stable coin issue? Yeah, well, with Coinbase, right, they have their own sort of specific issues. The street's really concerned about fee compression and the lack of volatility in the market. So 
they probably would be suffering or, or under some degree of pressure even without the UST debacle. But in terms of the broader stablecoin market, I talked to Tether and they said that they basically have um, a ton of U.S. Treasury short term. So it would be pretty easy for them to honor several billion dollars worth of redemption. UST is not in a similar boat right now. I mean, they're kind of struggling to get different whales in the market to do a capital infusion, topping at least, according to our reporting, a billion dollars. But at this point, with UST down as much as it is and Luna, the native token of Terra, it's it's looking a bit bleak. Um, but that isn't to say that it could happen. Um, it's just a question of when it yeah, might happen. It was how. widely anticipated as well. I mean, last summer we spoke with Gary Gordon of Yale, who had done that research on runs in the primary uh, money market financial system in 08. We talked to Caitlin Long, who hated the leverage that was building up in the system and said that, you know, it was an unhealthy sign that was mimicking the bad behaviors from the traditional financial system in 2008. So be that as it may, it didn't change anything. If anything, these coins only became more popular. Where do we go from here? Well, listen, what, what do they say when the music is playing? You've got to dance. And that's exactly what has been happening over the past month with with folks pouring into anchor to get those juicy 20 percent yields. But once sort of it became apparent that that basically there was a lot of risk here, people kind of ran for the exits, as Kate alluded to, where we go from here uh, it's, it's definitely a black eye on algorithmic stable coins. It, it will be really tough for them to instill trust in the system, uh, at least for Luna specifically and the broader Terra ecosystem. But right now, traders um, I'm hearing from DES are kind of de-risking and rotating into Bitcoin and ETH. There's a bit of a bid for Bitcoin and Ether right now. As you can see from the prices, Bitcoin's not down that much. And I think even though a lot of funds have been caught flat-footed, a lot of less crypto native funds aren't really that exposed to Luna. It's it's sure. a large market cap coin, but kind of out there on the long tail relative to uh, those two major bl blue chips, if you will. And I think that there will still be demand for Bitcoin and ETH um, irrespective of what's going on with, with Luna. And there's the price action. Bitcoin is off the lows today. It's back above 30000 and hanging on amid all of the uh, these deep sell-offs. Frank, thanks for now. We'll let you go. We appreciate it. Of course. Frank Chaparro with The Block. Still ahead, the options market showing that Beyond Meat could be poised for some big moves post-earnings of 24% or more. Add in its net uh, short interest of 38%. That's an equation for some big moves. We've got a preview and the trade ahead. Beyond shares are already down 12% today. As we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Uh, the blue chips are holding up relatively well in this market, but the index is still down 131 points. Apple and Microsoft are some of the worst performers. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org moneytools this podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. We've seen a 500-point swing on the Dow today from up 423 to down 164 a moment ago. We're down 100 right now. S&P's down 27. The Nasdaq down 221. It's by far the worst performer. Energy, utilities, materials, those are outperforming today, while technology and consumer discretionary are in the red. And choppy trading for Kohl's after its shareholders voted to re-elect the current slate of board of directors. This despite mounting pressure from McCallum, the activist investor, to overhaul the retailer. Shares are down about 3.5%. They've received several preliminary buyout offers. McKellum CEO telling CNBC today's vote for the company uh, was a vote for the sale of a business. And he says they aren't going away. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty. Kelly, thank you very much. A new report from the U.S. Interior Department says more than 500 Native American children died at 19 boarding schools they were forced to attend by the federal government. And that number is expected to grow. The report also details brutal treatment of children at more than 400 schools that operated between 1819 and 1969. It is the first step of a review ordered by Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American to serve in the cabinet, by the way, after unmarked graves of children were discovered at similar schools in Canada. Supreme Court has rejected a last-minute attempt to block Arizona from carrying out its first execution in nearly eight years. 66-year-old Clarence Dixon, scheduled to die by lethal injection for the 1978 murder of a college student. And a passenger with absolutely no flying experience landed a single-engine plane after the pilot was incapacitated by a medical emergency. The uh, new pilot was guided in by air traffic controllers who said the passenger did a great job bringing the plane in for what was described as a perfect landing. Tonight on the news with Shep Smith, a major crackdown on a casino with ties to Russia that was operating in the metaverse. Kelly? That plane landing is, is... Wow. Can they run can the you Fed? Imagine? <laughs> uh, Tyler, thank you very much. Still ahead, Disney, Beyond Meat, and Rivian are all on deck with results, and inflation is a factor for all three. We'll look at what else investors are watching in Earnings Exchange right after this. Jumpy market. Here's the Dow, which a moment ago was at new session lows down about 160 points. So even though it's a modest decline, we are seeing some selling pressure pick up throughout the afternoon with the Nasdaq leading the way lower down at uh, just shy of 2%. Let's turn now to some earnings names we are expecting this week. We have Disney on tap, among a few others, just today. Uh, and let's find out more about the action, the story, and the trade in today's edition of Earnings Exchange. Starting with Disney, which is down 1.2% today and down 40% from the highs. It's the worst performing stock uh, this year, right behind Boeing. Streaming slowdown, parks revenue, a big fight with Florida, all things to watch this afternoon. Julia Borson is here with the story. Danielle Shea with our trades. She's director of options at Simpler Trading. Welcome to both of you. Julia, kick things off for us. 
Well, Kelly, I think one of the most interesting things to see will be what Disney says about its streaming business. And of course, Disney is the last of the media giants to report. Netflix was the first and Netflix warned of a major slowdown in streaming subscribers. Now, Disney has a different strategy. They're still expanding globally. Maybe their market is less saturated, but I think the number to watch is 5 million. That's how many streaming subscribers for Disney Plus analysts are expecting the company to add. But I think any commentary about what things look like uh, in terms of that subscriber momentum for the rest of the year will be really interesting. And then the other big question is, of course, the theme parks and what they tell us about the strength of the consumer bookings for summer, consumer spending at the parks. Are those Disney parks visitors feeling impacted by inflation and all of this macroeconomic uncertainty, Kelly? All right. Let's get right to the point here with Danielle Shea. Would you be a buyer of Disney? What do you think about uh, what what does Disney need to do? You know, because I think I kind of know where you'd be going with this one. You know, Kelly, even the strongest stocks in the market have fallen on earnings, even after, you know, solid earnings reports. So there's no way that I can buy Disney here. One of the weakest stocks. Yes, it has fallen so far. And I wouldn't be surprised if it traded a little bit higher here just because it's gotten beaten down so bad. Uh, But you know what? It's in a downtrend. There's all kinds of headwinds. I don't think people are going to be rushing to go to Disney when they can't afford gas and food. So I personally would rather short it up at about 120 if we got a rally. If we got down to the 2020 lows around 87 and we stopped falling, that's where I would pick up shares. All right. So we're around 106 right now. So sort of stuck in this, the, stuck in the muck right now, if you will. Julia, you know, they, in a way they are dealing with um, forces beyond their control in the macro environment. Then you add kind of this political fight with Florida, which I'm not sure there's a near term concern for shareholders. So what can the company do or say here in order to, you know, pull off a, a renaissance like we saw when they first tried to, to sort of move from an ESPN model to a streaming one and, and got the stock to start working again? Well, there are so many questions in there, Kelly, um, but I think you're right. I think analysts are saying that this fight with Florida over the tax exempt um, status of the area that Disney World is in is not going to really have a meaningful near term impact. So that's not something they're worried about from a financial standpoint. But I think in terms of this transition to streaming, one thing that's going to be really interesting is the addition of an ad supported Disney Plus model. So far, Disney Plus has been subscription only, no ads. And now as we see cash strapped consumers, maybe reconsider how many of these services they want to pay for. It seems like having that lower cost option could be really beneficial for Disney. I think there will be some questions about when exactly that will launch. Of course, we know that Netflix is working on something as well. So so I think that's going to be part of the conversation, how Disney is using some of these lower cost options to help draw more subscribers, to help be more resilient, regardless of what's happening in the economy. Maybe they just say free cash flow. You want it? We got it. We got it right now. Uh, Julia, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, our Julia Borston. Let's turn to Beyond Meat, uh, trading right now near its all-time low price of $28 a share company not expected to report a profit. And according to facts that the stock carries 38 percent short interest, Kate Rogers has more for us. What are we watching tonight, Kate? 
Well, Kelly, take a look at that chart. It's had a rough six months down over 70 percent. Uh, 2021 was really challenging. CEO Ethan Brown admitted that they've got increased competition in the retail space. That's its food store segment. So that impacted results last quarter. We'll be very curious to hear what he has to say about that tonight. The company's restaurant business has fared somewhat better. Both are really important segments to watch because Beyond has increased its chicken offerings in particular in more locations in grocery. It also, remember, launched its Pepsi plant-based jerky product. They're also trying out some new locations for sales like drugstores and convenience stores to kind of, you know, be a last minute purchase when you're running out of one of those places. So we'll see if that moves the needle at all. This is a huge year for partnerships with McDonald's, Yum! Brands, Pepsi. But remember about two weeks ago, we saw the stock flying up and down on those false headlines that McDonald's was permanently adding the McPlant to the menu. So investors seem to be really looking for some good news to hang on to here with this name. Yeah, Danielle, are you still part of that short interest? And do you worry about a short squeeze? Because a, a headline like what Kate mentioned, mentioned uh, can pop the stock. Oh, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you pointed out the short interest because that's something that investors do have to be really care- careful about. I've been shorting Beyond Meat all year. I was actually short when it rallied like that, but it faded very quickly. And I'm <laughs> short right now as well. So I do hope that I'm not caught on the wrong side of a short squeeze here. And that absolutely can happen. But what I tell my traders personally is the number one thing that you have to do is you have to control your risk. You know, I am a little bit more of an aggressive options trader. I'm so selling premium in this one. So I'm selling some call credit spreads. Um, If there is some positive news, it may rally. But honestly, Kelly, pretty much everything that has rallied on earnings has come right back down. Just look at the way Lemonade was up 10% yesterday, and now it's down 10% today. So do it carefully. But I think it's still going lower. All right. It's sort of our theme here is, is sort of Danielle's being somewhat bearish, more bearish, and wait till the next one, really bearish. So we will leave Beyond Meat for now, Kate. Thank you very much. With the shares down 14% on the session and the results looming after the bell. Same for Rivian. The stock trading at an all-time low after hitting $170 a share back in November. It's currently now around 20. Ford sold a big part of its stake at a huge loss. The company is worth less than $20 billion after it IPO'd above $100 billion. Uh, There's the performance. Dom Chu has more of the story for us. I'm sure it must be, what about orders, Dom, this afternoon? So it's going to be about all kinds of outlooks, right? That's what it's going to be about. So, I mean, you talk about Rivian. It's only been in existence as a public company for two prior earnings reports. And after each of those reports, by the way, shares were volatile to the the downside, down by nearly 8% after its most recent quarter, and then down by 10% after its first report post-IPO. So when I tell you that the expectations are for a massive move today, I really mean it. Right now, the options market is pricing in an approximate 21% move in the stock, up or down on the heels of earnings after the market closed tonight with regard to those headline metrics. Now, Wall Street is expecting of a loss of around $1.44 a share. Revenue is roughly $130 million, but those metrics may not get the most attention. To your point, Kelly, production guidance could be key here. You may recall that after last its last report, Rivian lowered its production guidance down to 25,000 vehicles for 2022 from a prior estimate of 50,000. So do they stick to that guidance, especially in light of the ongoing global supply chain issues we've been reporting extensively on those key choke points and components like computer chips, other parts. So what will Rivian say about the global supply chain and those challenges? Are things actually getting better? When could they get better? How are those costs being managed around it? And by the way, All of that stuff, speaking of costs, 
What is the cash situation going to be like? Right. How much cash is it going through? Those are all going to be key, at least metrics that investors will watch, Kel. And Danielle, I'm going to steal a little bit from your answer here in order to ask you the, the next question. So you say you literally are going to short this to the ground. You think that this company, you say you get a lot of backlash when you say it'll go bankrupt, but that's that's kind of how bearish you are on it. What about the prospect that somebody could come in for the technology, for what they have done so far, um, for the order? I mean, at a time when private equity is sniffing all around the tech ecosystem as we understand it, if Rivian's outlook, is, in your opinion, is that bleak, could some could they have a suitor come in here? You know, they definitely could. But I mean, I'm looking at Ford and Amazon both. I mean, look at what happened to Amazon on earnings. And a big part of that reason was because of their investment in Rivian. I mean, how much longer are they going to stay in the game? And then you look at Ford, which is already starting to offload shares. You know, you had the lockup this week. You have massive selling that has been coming in, which tells me that even the early investors want to get out. I don't think that Saudi Arabia is going to bail on this one yet, but I just think that the runway is very long for them. And I question seriously who is going to want to invest at this point based on what's already happened to their previous investors. All right. So short and staying short. And we will leave it there. Danielle, thank you again for your time today. Danielle Shea, Dom Chu, we always appreciate it. And we will see you very soon. Coming up, sticker shock in the skies. One of the most staggering numbers in today's CPI report was airline fares, which posted the largest increase since the series inception. Are there any signs that travel inflation could be coming back down to earth? Plus a mortgage makeover, rates on the rise, arms making a comeback and refinancing plunging. We'll dive into it all. The exchange back in two with stocks at session lows. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Another nugget from today's CPI report was airfares. Not only are they not cooling off, as Americans are learning, they are soaring. And it's not just airfares. Seema Modi is here with all of the details. Seema? Kelly, that's right. Travel among the largest contributors to the monthly increase in consumer prices. The index for airline fares sharply increasing by 18.6% in April. That is the largest one-month increase since the inception of this CPI report in 1963, that according to BLS. Now, the cost to check into a hotel continues to rise. Hilton revealing average daily rates 36% higher than the same period a year ago. The big hotel chains, remember, are incentivized to keep prices high. Pent-up demand, wage inflation among the reasons. For reference, the most expensive hotel markets today, Maui, where daily rates just surpassed $600 a night, Florida Keys in the $500 range, that according to SDR. This summer, analysts are expecting a big rebound in city travel. Vegas, Orlando high on the list and is starting to hit travelers. A new survey just released from TripAdvisor found that 74% of Americans surveyed are extremely concerned about rising costs. That's higher than citizens in other countries like Japan, Australia. But nearly 85% said travel remains a top priority despite rising costs because of the pandemic and being away from family for such a long time, Kelly. It's like the report highlights its own instability. You know, we have uh, reports about how Americans are going to pull back because of inflation, while at the same time, 
it's spending on some of these services that's fueling it. So I don't know which which happens first. Exactly. Uh, Hilton CEO Chris Nassetta was an interesting comment he made on the call last week was that they're watching these prices minute by minute to make tweaks if they start to see the consumer pull back. So these prices can certainly change if you start to see bookings impacted in a substantial way. I'd also point out home rentals, Kelly, if you are looking for alternative on average, uh, a cheaper daily rate than hotels at this point. But of course, perspective hmm. here is that prices really soared during the pandemic when people pivoted to Airbnbs and work from home. Um, so that's one thing to keep into account as we watch these travel trends. Yeah, absolutely. Seema, thank you very much. Seema Modi. Still ahead as mortgage rates rise, so is demand for riskier loan products like adjustable rate mortgages. Those applications hitting a 14-year high last week. The CEO of one of America's largest lenders joins us next with the trends he's seeing and the implications for the housing market. Welcome back. It's no surprise the housing market has been rattled by the huge spike in mortgage rates the past few months. Mortgage applications are down 8% year-on-year as the 30-year fixed rate jumps to over 5.5%. Arm loans, often considered riskier, are rising. How's it all affecting the market? Let's ask the CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage. The company had earnings this morning that beat estimates, but their originations for the first quarter were down 21%. The stock down 1.5% today and down about 40% this year. Matt Ishbia is chairman and CEO of UWMC, and he joins us now. All right, Matt, where do we go from here? What would you say? I mean, do we, we, now no one can sell a house because where do you go? You got to get a 5.5% mortgage to buy a new one at an all-time high price. Yeah, you know, obviously rates went up. It's not a surprise. People knew that was going to happen. They went up a little faster than expected. But we're seeing so much purchase activity. People are buying houses. The housing market is still hot. There's not a a huge amount of inventory, so people are buying houses. We actually had our our record first quarter purchase market. We think the second quarter should be even better. Purchases are out there. They're happening. Just refinances have fallen off because of the interest rates. You know, I I will say anecdotally, I, I watch every time I see a for sale sign go up in town, and they are still under contract within days, right now at least. I mean, it is amazing. So for those, I mean, you can call it some younger buyers who are hoping that prices correct substantially here and that bidding wars go away. What would you tell them? Yeah, well, I think the key is, you know, we have to understand there, there are less houses out there right now. If you look a year ago, it was about over a million houses listed for sale. Now there's about 400,000, 500,000. It's, it's changed a lot. However, there are still great houses out there. Opportunity is still there. People are looking and people are moving. You just got to find the right opportunity. And I think it's going to cool off a little bit after the third quarter. But the next, you know, four or five months, it's going to be a very competitive housing market, even with interest rates going up. And we're seeing a lot of purchase business. So we're excited to continue to keep that momentum going. So can you give us a sense, you know, how uh, lucrative are purchases versus refis for you guys? If refis are gonzo, what else can you do uh, to kind of pivot the business model? Yeah, so our business, we're the largest purchase lender in the country. This is two years consecutive. This will be the third consecutive year. We're doing great on purchase, so we don't really have to pivot much. A lot of my competitors have to pivot because they're so dependent on refinance. If your rates are trying to people drop their rates, that's not what we're about at our company. So our company, we had a great first quarter earnings. We're going to have a great second quarter again. We're very confident in what we're doing and growing our market share. And so... Um, Purchases is a different market than refis. And companies that only do refinances are 70, 80, 90% of their business was refinance. 
It's a rude awakening right now. A lot of those companies are laying people off. We're not doing that. We're still hiring people. We're still winning. We're growing our market share. We're working with mortgage brokers, a little different market right now. And so we're having a lot of success. We're excited for this year to really separate us from the rest. Can you do anything product innovation-wise? We talked about arms, but you know, I continue to hear a lot of speculation about whether there could be a 40-year mortgage. You know, what could bring down the monthly payment? How can people get into a home more affordably? Do you have to kind of stay pretty conventional or are there emerging opportunities? Well, there's always opportunities on the product side, but I think the key thing is educating consumers, right? Because people think I need 10 or 20% down to buy a home. You don't need that. You can get 5% down programs. For veterans, there's no money down programs. There's great programs, but you got to find a mortgage broker. There's a website, findamortgagebroker.com. Find a local person in your market that can educate you. Is ARM the right choice? Is it a fix? Is it a 5% down? Is it 20% down? What are those implications? This is the biggest purchase of your life. You've got to make sure you get it right, and that's what I think is the key is getting educated, getting the knowledge. It's not a do yourself product. You actually got to find experts to help you. Final question. What would, I know this can sound like a strange thing, but as a mortgage market participant, what would you like to see the Fed do here? You know, the way I look at it is I can't control what the Fed does. Rates are going to go up, rates are going to go down, and we're going to win in all market cycles at UWM. I feel confident that mortgage brokers are the best place for consumers, and I feel confident that we're the best place for mortgage brokers. So UWM, we're winning. We had a great first quarter. We'll continue to win. I can't control what they do. All I can control is our actions after that, and we're going to keep winning every day. All right. Matt, thank you very much. Good to have you here today. Thank you. Matt Ishbia, the CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage. Coming up, COVID cases rising again in some parts of the country. The latest numbers and where we're seeing the biggest increase is next. As we go, markets are hovering around session lows and Bitcoin is just above $30,000 right now as we watch whether it will pierce that once again to the downside. The Nasdaq down 2.5%. Stay with us. Welcome back. COVID cases back on the rise in certain parts of the country, including here in the Northeast. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, cases and hospitalizations are on the rise nationally now. Cases now more than 70,000 being recorded every day. Hospitalizations have also been rising. They're up about 12% week over week, still very close to pandemic lows in terms of the levels of hospitalizations. Deaths have ticked up just slightly, but are essentially flat. Still more than 300 Americans dying every day from COVID. But generally, Kelly, what we hear from health officials in this wave is that the level of severe disease relative to the number of cases is lower. You're not seeing as many people being sent to the hospital or dying from COVID as you might have expected in previous waves, probably because of all of the immunity that's out there. But one thing that is really driving things is this new subvariant of Omicron known as BA.2.12.1. It's estimated to be about 25% more transmissible than even BA.2, which was the sort of next generation Omicron. And you can see the white there is the prevalence of this new variant nationally. It's been rising now 43% across the country, but it's not evenly distributed. It is most prevalent here in the Northeast. About two thirds of cases in the New York region are now this variant, but it is starting to rise essentially everywhere. Uh, And so there are concerns that as we have seen cases so high in the Northeast, that is a more vaccinated, a more boosted area. As this starts to move across the country, will we start to see higher levels of severe disease in areas that don't have so much immune protection built up? That's a big concern. Is anyone reacting to this yet, though? 
in terms of implementing mask mandates and things like that. We haven't seen a lot of that. There's been speculation that could potentially come back, but we saw Philly do it and then lift it when things started to seem to go in the right direction. So we haven't heard a ton about that yet. I wonder what the difference is, because if we go back to the worst spike, obviously that was pre-vaccine when the healthcare system was at risk of overcrowding. But is there any concern about a risk like that emanating again? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are very focused on what's happening with the healthcare system. And right now, the metrics do look a lot better than they have in the past. And so you're not seeing the urgency of local governments moving, even though some local governments have actually met the thresholds that would suggest they start to think about things like implementing mask mandates and things like that. It just seems like the political will really isn't there. If we do see a lot more severe disease, though, that could prompt some action. Absolutely. Meg, for now, thank you, Meg Terrell. COVID is just one of the very economists are watching as we head into the back half of the year. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.